World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people in Myanmar head to a little village to commune with guardian spirits called Nats. This bit of folk religion once sat comfortably with the country's dominant Buddhist beliefs, but now the monks are cracking down on it. And the town of Asbestos in Canada has a bit of an image problem. Its name is proving as toxic as the fireproofing material that was once mined there. So residents are meeting today to vote on whether to change it. But first... Today in France, demonstrators are gathering to protest against President Emmanuel Macron's proposed pension reforms. Among others, railway workers, teachers and hospital staff are all walking out in the latest in a wave of strikes and demonstrations that began in early December. Mr. Macron wants to bring the country's sprawling system of 42 different regimes into one points-based plan. Protesters have denounced the scheme, saying that workers, especially in the public sector, would lose out. If the currently proposed system passes in the way it's laid out, it will be a social catastrophe. Already, the previous reforms are seeing people retire with measly pensions. French presidents have tried before to change the monstrously complex and generous system. But in the face of massive protests, they only managed tweaks. Pensions became a symbol of an apparently unreformable France. In his New Year address, Mr. Macron promised not to back down, saying abandoning the reform would be a betrayal of our children and their children after them, who would have to pay the price for our giving up. And nor are the unions backing down, leaving France, for now, at a standstill. Well, for over a month now, there have been very few metro lines working in Paris at all. There have been very few suburban trains, even the TGV fast train across the country that has been on limited service. And this has just led to empty platforms, absolutely packed trains when they come, and a lot of exasperation. And we've we've talked before about the, the substance of, of these reforms. How important is it to, to Mr. Macron that he actually gets them pushed through? I think it is because this is in a way the sort of third series of reforms that he has put in place and the others he's already done, one to the labour market and the other to uh, sort of training and education. And I think that if he doesn't get this one through, his whole reputation as a a reformer, uh, a politician who promised to transform France 
will be in a way damaged. And these reforms really are important because the French have a generous pension system. They spend about 14% of GDP on pensions, which is nearly twice the average in the OECD. And they also spend a long time in retirement. So it's just a costly system that needs to be put on a proper financial basis and, and preserved for the future. And how does Mr. Macron propose to do that? Well, at the moment, France has got this incredible tangle of about 42 different pension regimes, all with their own rules, and nobody really knows what their pension rights are. So what he wants to do is merge them all into one, where everybody has the same rules, everybody knows where they are, and it will be based on points that you accumulate over the course of your life and from the very minute you start working. I mean, is this kind of wholesale reform actually required? Is there, is there Was there not a, a simpler, perhaps less aggravating way to do it? Well, I think there, there could have been. If you wanted to just introduce a sort of technical fix to the problem, you could have increased the charges that people and employers pay for their pensions. And you could have done that with about 0.7% increase on those charges. The pension deficit, which could reach about 17 billion euros in 2025, that gap could have been closed. But that's not the way Macron thinks. That's not the way he was elected. And he wanted to go for a much more radical overhaul. And I think this is where complication and the confusion has come in. It in particular seems to have raised the ire of the unions. Why Why have they dug in so hard? Well, I think that there are a couple of reasons. One of them is it's, it's been very poorly explained, this pension reform. And actually, if you look at it, there are elements that really are redistributive in the reform. For example, that he's going to introduce a minimum pension of €1,000, so people who currently don't get that will be able to. It also puts a cap on the insurance contributions that are paid by people on high earnings so that they are only paying into the general pension regime. They're not actually benefiting from them over a certain limit for themselves. But that's not the way the unions see it. The really hardline unionists linked to the Communist Party just want to get rid of the points-based pension system plan altogether. They say that they won't go off, they won't call an end to their strike until Macron shelves that reform. So I think this really leaves one option for, for the government, and that's to try and deal with the more moderate unions who at least back the reform in principle, even if they don't like some of the details. Well, what about fiddling with the details? Is there, is there a means to, to keep everybody happy about all this? I don't think there's an easy solution. I think that we've seen this week already talks begin to resume again between the government and the more moderate unions, the CFDT in, in, in particular, which is led by uh, Laurent Berger, who himself is now the leader of the biggest union in France. And he's said he's be backs the system. But there is a, a real sticking point about the financing, in particular, something called the pivot age that the government has introduced. It's an idea that the French, rather than working till 62, should be encouraged to work till about 64. And this has enraged Laurent Berger and his union, mainly because their argument, and it's not an illegitimate argument, other economists make the same point, is that if you have a points-based system, you don't need to have a, a, a retirement age because each individual person should be able to work out how many points they need for the sort of pension they expect to then give them the lifestyle they want or can, can reasonably hope to have in retirement. And so doesn't it seem that this pivot age then is the, is the, the last bastion of, of potential compromise, at least with the moderate unions? 
Well, possibly, but I think there's a sense already that the government has given ground on a number of issues, in particular to certain sectors who already benefit from special regimes. If you look at the dancers at the Paris Opera, for example, they've been promised that the new point system will only affect new recruits, and they've, in fact, been sort of dancing on the steps of the Paris Opera at one point as part of their strike, a rather beautiful form of industrial protest. But other categories like the prison wardens or air traffic controllers have also been made these sorts of promises, so that the government has already been pushing into the future and even into the sort of quite distant future the application of the new point system which which means that you know to start conceding on the pivot age as well might start looking like just that one concession too far and so where do do, do the people of France fall on this point about the, the sort of recalcitrant unions versus a, a president who, who may or may not be making too many concessions? Well, what's interesting is that over the last month and a bit, not only has the percentage of railway workers been on strike, has that come down, but the percentage of the general public that backs the strikes has also just dropped below a majority. So for the first time, you're beginning to see public opinion a turn against the strike. But what you're not seeing yet is public opinion backing, therefore, the new points-based system. And that's, I think, where, you know, the government has not done a good job in explaining it. People do feel very confused about what this reform is all about. It touches everybody because everybody is part of the mandatory pension scheme in France. And therefore, I think today will show really whether this is sort of the last gasp of a strike that has almost run its course or whether it can gather momentum for a sort of renewed New Year push that will really put a lot of pressure on the government. So what happens today is, is really crucial. And that in turn, the, the, the vociferousness of these protests will in, in turn be something of a comment as to whether or not France can be reformed, whether Mr. Macron can do it. That's absolutely right. And, you know, in a sense, it's also a test of whether or not uh, it's the government that rules France or the street. Macron was elected on a promise to make this change to the pension system. He made it very explicit and he was democratically elected to do that. He has a majority in parliament. And in most countries, that ought to be enough for him to be able to put this through. So it is a test not just of this particular reform, but of the ability of, of Emmanuel Macron to continue to reform France. Sophie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Buddhism is overwhelmingly the dominant religion in Myanmar. Roughly 90% of the population follows the faith. In recent years, nationalist monks have claimed that Buddhism is under threat and urged holy war against Rohingya Muslims, 750,000 of whom have fled the country. And some of those monks are now railing against another perceived internal enemy. Many Buddhists in Myanmar also believe in Nats, a group of guardian spirits who are willing to bless the faithful with good fortune if they're given the right offerings. For centuries, Buddhism and Nat worship have been in peaceful coexistence, but tensions have recently emerged. So, Every August, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over Myanmar 
descend on a village called Tangpian, which is middle of the country, just 20 kilometers north of Mandalay. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. And they go there to commune with gnats. Gnats are these guardian spirits who rule over an area, so a mountain, a road, a, a lake, a village. The thing that binds them all together is that they have a tendency of getting angry if they're not appeased. You don't want a gnat to be angry at you. <laughs> they have powers and they can rain misfortune down on you know the believers. But if you keep them happy, they will ensure that your, your business thrives, that your family stays healthy. And so what happens at the festival? So these thousands of pilgrims, they come to Tangpian basically in order to keep these gnats happy. You know, you're surrounded by the smell of incense, the sound of drums, this quite piercing whine of, of oboes. And these people, they throng to these temples to participate in what's called nat pui, or spirit possession ceremonies, in which a medium, who's typically a man wearing quite an elaborate outfit and sort of quite feminine makeup, channels the spirit. And there's much dancing, much much showering down of the local currency, much um, tucking of, of bills into the, the spirit medium's garments. But it sounds as if not all is happy at this festival every year. Yeah, I recently spoke to a man called Han Tun, who is a 65-year-old spirit medium. He was at Tangkyeon Festival three years ago when something rather unusual happened. Ten Buddhist monks interrupted the ceremony. They are wielding metal rods, and they began insulting everyone there. They began tearing down decorations, and they threatened to beat the people there if they refused to hand over the offerings to the gnat. These offerings would have been things like bananas, coconuts, but also, crucially, money. This is not the kind of thing that you would expect from Buddhist monks. No, and Hanton explained to me that this wasn't an isolated incident. Over the last 10 years, it seems, monks have been targeting people who worship gnats. What happens is they, they will shout at gnat worshippers, they will threaten physical violence, they may knock down holy objects like gnat statues, uh, and they may steal offerings. But why? Why don't the monks like the, the, all of these proceedings? A lot of Buddhist monks have for a long time been highly critical of the spirit cult. This criticism stems back to over a century ago, when an idea of Buddhism as not so much a religion, but as a really rational philosophy started to gain hold. And um, the drinking, the dancing, the communing with, with gnats totally undermined this idea of Buddhism. So people began to describe the spirit cult as a corruption of the faith, but they still tolerated it because it was traditional. It was something that Burmese people had been doing for centuries, even millennia. But recently, as Myanmar has opened itself up to the world, hostility to these gnats has grown. But much of what we've heard about Myanmar in, in, in recent years in terms of religious intolerance actually doesn't have anything to do with, with gnats or the sort of folk religion element. No, the news has quite rightly been dominated by the fact that over the last few years, the military, in concert with some purist Buddhist monks, have been advocating for 
the removal of Muslims from the country. And this has led to the displacement of 750,000 Rohingya Muslims from Rakhine State. In, and, I, and I should say what the UN has described uh, as an intended act of genocide. This Rohingya conflict is indicative, however, of a growing sense among Burmese Buddhists that their religion is imperiled and must be uh, kept pure. And so if the, the kinds of atrocities that we've seen among the, the Rohingya ha, has turned out like that based on the same kind of feeling, do you, do you get the sense that the, the worshippers of the Nats are, are under a similar threat? No, I don't think so. It's important to note that while the Burmese Buddhist monks who have been most vocal in, in expressing their hatred for Muslim Rohingyas haven't talked about Nats at all, I interviewed one such monk who was unfortunately quite adamant in, in his sort of stated hatred for Muslims. And, you know, he said that while the Nats spirit cult poses a problem to Buddhism, it doesn't pose a threat in the same way that, that Islam does. So, so it sounds as if the, the, the tension here is between a, a modern and a more traditional version of Buddhism. Then how, how do you think that tension will be resolved? As Burmese people stream towards the cities, leaving their old you know, rural villages behind, more and more of them are saying, these gnats that I grew up with, they're not for me. They don't belong in cities. Uh, they belong to the old Myanmar. But I found it telling when I had a conversation with my fixer about his religious background. He was raised a Buddhist and, and raised to believe in the gnats. Today, he says he's atheist. But when we went to Tangpyeon and looked at the shrine, he went up to the Nat figurines and gave them an offering. So I think that belief in Nats will nonetheless persist for some time. Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. It was once thought to be a miracle material. Asbestos was incorporated into everything from textiles to building materials so that they wouldn't burn. In the Second World War, it was used to insulate American ships and tanks, woven into fireproof uniforms. It was so loved that in 1943, the Canadian Navy launched the warship HCMS Asbestos. But now it's known mostly for contributing to lung cancer, which is unfortunate for the town of Asbestos in Quebec. Back in 1879, there was a Welsh miner wandering around the farmland south of Montreal, and he came across an asbestos deposit. Madeleine Drohan is The Economist's Canada correspondent. And they quickly started to mine it, and it grew and grew. It's now two kilometers long, and the community grew up around it. And so they took the name of the reason they were there, which is asbestos. And so what's going on with the mine now? The mine closed in 2012, and it was the main employer in town. So why do some of the residents of Asbestos want to change its name now? Well, when the main employer in town closes, and it's a single industry town, the residents are pretty much in a fight for survival. And they have to figure out what else can they bring to the town? What sort of investment can they attract? And the current mayor is having terrible trouble 
attracting people to come to asbestos just because of the name. You know, he says when he goes and meets potential investors, he's had some that wouldn't even take his business cards. It was as if he was contagious. So something has to be done, and he thinks a name change will help. And how does that even work? How does a town change its name? Well, the first thing a town has to do is get all the people on board. But in order to do that, someone has to lead the campaign. And in this case, it's the mayor, and he's persuaded the town council to vote in favor of changing a name. But now they have to persuade the residents as well. And that's what the meeting today is all about. Because the mayor is expecting that there is going to be some strong resistance. A mayor back in 2006 tried the same thing. And he even came up with some names like Twalak, which means three lakes, and Phoenix. But the residents weren't ready for that. And in fact, they replaced the mayor. So it's not at all clear that, that people on average want to, to change the name. I mean, what, why the commitment to the name asbestos? I think there's three reasons why there are still some people there who would like to keep the name asbestos. I mean, one, people are very proud of what they do. And this is part of this community's heritage. This is what they did. And for many years, it was seen as this wonderful mineral, and they felt like they were sort of part of the global community. But the second reason is they've been lied to a lot about asbestos. I mean, when certain lung diseases and that that are associated with asbestos, the numbers of them started to creep up. People sort of covered up that it had anything to do with asbestos. And both the Canadian and Quebec governments were really gung-ho supporters of asbestos. I mean, the Canadian federal government didn't ban asbestos products until 2018. So the residents didn't have a firm grip of just how dangerous the mineral they were mining was. The third, and this is probably quite a smaller reason, but all the same, this is a French-speaking community. Asbestos in French is amiante. So it doesn't have the same sting, asbestos. So all told in, in today's vote, do you, do you think that the, the town will, will bite the bullet and change the name? I think they probably will go along with it, although who knows? I mean, we'll have to see what the vote is. But they're aware, too, that for the town to survive, they need to get new investment. And as well, other communities in Canada over the years have changed their names for one reason or another, I mean, the most famous example is probably Berlin, Ontario, where there were a lot of Germans. But during the First World War, they decided it might be better to have a different name. And they changed it to Kitchener after Lord Kitchener, the British field marshal. But there are some communities that sort of hold their ground and say, no way. There is a community called Swastika, Ontario. And they came under a lot of pressure during the Second World War to changed their name because Adolf Hitler had appropriated that symbol. But they held their ground and said, we had it first, and they kept the name of Swastika. Madeline, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
world peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.